0: This is Transforming Learning. In the TL Podcast, we share conversations with teachers about classroom strategies that elevate teaching and learning. If you hear a helpful idea, let us know by sharing the episode or leaving a review on iTunes. We are at CBD Consulting on social media. And don't hesitate to connect with us directly or browse our other resources at cbdconsulting.com slash elevate edu. From everyone here at Communications by Design, we hope you enjoy.
1: This is Pete Grastic. In today's conversation, I'll be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Burr-Moji, Dean for the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Dean Moji is the George Herbert Mead Collegiate Professor of Education and Arthur F. Thurnau Professor. She has over 100 publications to her name and is a leader in the research of discipline-based literacy. In her current research and community engagement work, Dean Moji uses an array of methods to study and support young people's literacy learning in Detroit, Michigan, She's particularly interested in the intersections between disciplinary literacies of school and the literacy practices of youth outside of school. She also studies how youth draw from home, community, ethnic, popular, and school cultures to make cultures and to enact identities. In related work focused on teacher learning, Moji developed and co-directs teaching and learning the disciplines through clinical practice rounds with colleague Robert Bain. The ROUNDS project, which advances discipline-based literacy teacher education in urban settings, was awarded the Provost Teaching Innovation Prize at the University of Michigan in 2010. Dean Moji is also a member of the National Academy of Education, where she chairs the Professional Development Committee. In today's conversation, we talk about her expertise and background in literacy research, as well as the challenges around new teacher recruitment and teacher retention. I hope you enjoy. I am here with Dean Elizabeth Burr-Moji. Dean Moji, thanks for coming on the podcast today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. This is great.
1: So I'd like to talk about a teacher... Recruitment and teacher retention, some big topics right now in the field of, of pre-K-12 education. But before we do that, could you give us a characterization of your background and experience that kind of led you where you are today, both in terms of occupations you've had, roles you've had, but also philosophy?
2: I'd be happy to. I love to talk about my background because I started my career as a high school teacher. I taught history and political science and biology. I was a drama director after school. I was the cheerleading coach. I even drove a school bus uh, to take the cheerleaders and the the drama kids around town. So um, I had lots of great experiences working with young people in the classroom and outside the classroom that led me to recognize the need to teach the whole child to understand the whole child um, and to motivate the whole child. So um, my work really led me to ask questions about um, why kids weren't learning the way I wanted them to learn and to start to look at myself, my own teaching practice and also look at the context uh, for teaching and learning and the purposes for teaching and learning. And that led me into, um, oddly enough, the study of literacy. Because one of the things I struggled with was engaging young people in reading and writing texts that related to their disciplinary learning. And as I struggled, initially I thought it was about them and their motivation. But as I followed them through many different contexts, you know being on the school bus with them, um, you know, working with them after school in play practice, I started to see that they actually were really strong readers and writers as long as they cared about what they were reading and writing and that's what I mean by having to look at myself and my own practice and ask really hard questions about why should someone read this historical text and what am I doing to help them read it and to motivate them to read it instead of expecting them to come into the classroom motivated. So that led me uh, actually into graduate study in literacy, language, and culture to really understand the relationships among um, people's motivation and abilities or skills um, in reading and writing uh, and their cultural backgrounds, their language knowledge, Um, the ways they use language in many different contexts. And I got so intrigued by what I was learning and learned so much that was valuable for improving my teaching, that I decided to uh, go after a a PhD in literacy, language, and culture, and did all kinds of research in school classrooms. Um, my, My very first study ever was in a high school French classroom, studying the literacy practices associated with learning French. But then I moved to studying a high school chemistry classroom. So my interest was in um, how the context and the subject matter actually changes the way um, young people might engage with the literacy practices and the literacy demands of the subject. And then also how the teachers of those subjects really scaffolded kids' understanding and also their motivation. Um, so that's, that's what I've been doing for a long time, about 30 plus years, um, really trying to understand how teachers and students can work together, um, how teachers can better understand who their students are, educate the whole child, understand their cultural backgrounds, and bring those to bear on their learning to improve instruction.
1: So currently, Elizabeth, what are some areas of interest? How how has that kind of developed, that background, into maybe more specific or different areas of interest for you right now?
2: So I've been doing um, all my research in Detroit for the last 21 years. Um, and I've studied young people, again, as they move in and out of school, um, you know, in their uh, sort of play activities, if you will, um, and also in various classrooms, so science classrooms, English classrooms, history classrooms, to really understand who they are as people, and who they are as readers and writers, and then what that means for learning in that subject area. I also have been working with teachers to help them improve their instruction and also with uh, teaching candidates, so teaching interns in our teacher education program to help them learn how to teach more effectively before they enter the classroom. Um, My current research is actually focused on children, young people, learning um, the literacy practices of engineering. Now that might sound, you know, like it came out of left field, but the next generation science standards, Mm -hmm. national science standards, which um, have been adopted in in various ways across different states. In the state of Michigan, um, there's a version of those standards called the Michigan Science Standards. Those standards demand that teachers teach engineering concepts, K-12, but nobody has actually prepared teachers teach engineering. Mm -hmm. So some of the work we're doing is actually trying to um, support teachers by developing curricula and developing different kinds of pedagogical practices to help them teach engineering to young people. We partner with the College of Engineering, and we're running a program. Uh, We're doing it right now after school and summer school. But we're about to launch in two different schools, one in Detroit and one Um, in Washtenaw County, and uh, we work with young people to use different kinds of sensing technologies and social science research to study problems in their own community, and then to actually propose solutions to city officials, to community elders, um, to community groups. Um, to improve the community. So an example of this uh, work, which is called "Sensors in a Shoebox," is um, we're working right now uh, with young people at the Detroit Hispanic Development Corporation, and they are studying a park that's adjacent to the building, to DHDC building, and they are proposing all kinds of solutions for making the park um, a more welcoming space. Mm for people who live in the neighborhood. And one of the solutions is to build more seating in the, um, in the park. And so they're partnering with a group called Sit On It Detroit, hmm. who builds benches from reclaimed wood from blighted homes that have been uh, torn down. So the youth designed in, uh, in collaboration with the Sit On It Detroit leader, Um, designed a bench, it's going to be a smart bench, it'll have a sensor installed in it, and they will, um, they've actually decorated the bench, so they put art on it, um, and they will actually be monitoring how many people use the bench and at what times of day. And it's a portable bench, so they can actually move it to different parts of the park. So that's just an example of um, the kinds of work that we're doing with young people. And this goes back to what I was talking about um, in regard to motivation. Instead of saying, everybody needs to learn engineering, we're going to do this set of engineering exercises and you all are gonna practice your math and you're all going to learn how to write you know, engineering code. We're actually engaging them in projects that require them to use mathematics, to use literacy, to learn about the code that is employed in building these sensors, to track the data, to make presentations to city officials. It's called place-based and Mm project-based education. And we now have, uh, after four iterations where we studied what worked and what didn't work, we now have a curriculum that we want to put into place mm. in schools. Mm. So that's the kind of work I'm doing these days.
1: That's so interesting. You know, and, and in pre-K12, there's a uh, project-based learning is is kind of a, a, I would say, trendy, meaningful topic. And this idea of authentic audience and how that links to student motivation. And I'm just seeing that's just that, that example you gave, Elizabeth. is just oozing with authenticity. Um, is that something that you're, is that a major focus, this, um, this idea of authenticity in your, in your work?
2: Absolutely, authenticity, meaning, and purpose are critical to real learning. We know this from all major studies of learning. Um, when people have some reason to remember something, for example, they remember it. Um, when they have a reason to employ some skill they employ it and so it's always about meaningful purposeful activity that of course then requires it to be authentic in some way and i you know i could take up the whole podcast (laughs) telling you about things that we're seeing these young people do that really demonstrate both their their motivation their engagement in this meaningful learning and the learning itself And I'll just do one example because I think it's, um, this will really resonate with teachers, especially teachers of adolescents. We had uh, one participant who was really um, in love with her phone, as many of our young people are. Um, And she spent a lot of time on that phone. But after we collected data from instruments she had helped design she was going through data analysis, and we actually saw her reject phone calls. And at one point, she actually answered the phone and said, I can't talk now. I'm busy analyzing data, and hung <laughs> up on the person. And it was, it was just a, you know, it's an, it's an example. It's a one-time incident, but it was a marked difference in how she entered the program. Um, and, and how she was engaging when she knew mm. that there was a reason to engage. And we've seen just example after example of this, kids coming back to the program from last summer and remembering things that they learned last summer. And we talk a lot about summer learning loss and you know, needing adequate learning time, which uh, I'm, I'm a big supporter of. Um, you know, balancing our calendar, mm-hmm. distributing time for learning, but isn't it interesting that you know when when children are experiencing something that matters to them, they remember it yeah. and they want to use it absolutely
1: yeah when when I'm doing uh, workshops with teachers, I often will ask them what's something you remember from your k twelve experience and it's rarely or I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, "Well, it was worksheet thirteen point one number five. You know that really did it for me. It's a it's a guest speaker, it's a project, it's a field trip, it's something like that that we can attach meaning to. And often it's those really authentic experiences.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right.
1: So, what's the curriculum called, and is it available right now? Or
2: it is called Sensors in a Shoebox. We shorthand it as the Sensors uh, Curriculum. It's, it's not quite ready for prime time. We want to actually um, put it into practice and study it in classrooms. Um, so this is what we do. This is what our research is all about. Um, I mean, we do many different kinds of research here in the School of Education. But um, this kind of research is what we call design-based. And so we think of it as um, putting something into practice, studying it making sure it's feasible and usable for teachers and students and where we see the teachers or the students making changes to the curriculum we document that we study why they made the changes and then we adapt the curriculum so before we take it to a larger scale or try to transfer it to different contexts we always want to test it and um, we think that's just you know equitable, um, uh, you know, integrous practice. Um, We don't want to put stuff in people's hands that really doesn't work and makes them feel um, like they're lacking efficacy as teachers.
1: So we'll be on the lookout for sensors in a shoebox as the years go by here. So that's great. It will
2: be an open education resource. Oh,
1: we are. Love it. Love it. So you are the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan, which is amazing. And you became an interim, I understand, in the summer of 2016, and then um, full-time, well, I'm sure it was full-time as, as the interim, but appointed in early 2017. Can you talk a little bit about your day-to-day as dean? How, how have things shifted for you now that you're the, the dean of the School of Education?
2: Well, that's a great question. Uh, I should say that I was associate dean for research um, and community engagement for six years prior to stepping into the deanship. So uh, some of the changes are um, not as noticeable as they would have been had I gone from being a regular faculty member teaching and doing my own research and working with students to um, being dean. Um, I would say the day-to-day, Um, differences a lot more meetings uh, lots and lots of meetings um, lots of opportunity to interact with amazing people I think that's one of the most exciting things about the job Um, getting to Spend a lot of time with my faculty, with students at all levels. Um, You know, when you're a faculty member, you know, you tend to focus on the students you're teaching at the moment. And of course, um, you know, graduate students who are uh, working on a PhD, um, you know, we have one on one relationships with them. Um, But when you're the dean, you know, everyone is your student. Um, every student, that is. Um, and so it's, it's really exciting to meet all these different people doing amazing things here for very different reasons um, and to, you know, be as supportive as possible. Um, we also have a pretty major initiative focused on diversity, inclusion, justice, and equity. We refer to it as DHE which is a Spanish word, um, but it's also the acronym Diversity, Inclusion, Justice, and Equity. Um, The Spanish word means I said or I told, and we are using that as our sort of um, guiding mantra for thinking about speaking up Mm -hmm. and speaking out and taking a stand, um, telling our stories, trying to live together as um, human beings who, are all dedicated to the same purpose, and that is improving education in our society, but doing it in a way that is really just and equitable, um, so that we can make a more just and equitable education system.
1: Could you speak a little bit about the the School of Education here at the University of Michigan? What makes it unique in your mind? What makes it um, a little bit different than maybe some other schools of ed?
2: Well, I would say one of the reasons that we are unique is that we have an incredible faculty. Um, we have a faculty absolutely dedicated to our mission, which is to improve education practice, policy, and the context of teaching and learning to serve the mission, I guess, or the vision of uh, producing civically engaged children, youth, and adults for a diverse, democratic, and inclusive society. So we're all about that mission and every faculty member, every staff member, and I believe every student because they've chosen to come here, is is really laser focused on that mission and that vision. So what does that look like in practice? You know, we have faculty members who do work like I described as uh, my work, right? We're out in schools, we're um, doing research on curriculum and on pedagogical practice so that we can actually contribute to that practice. We do research that's large-scale database analysis to try to tell, uh, you know, stories of, you um, equity and justice, so that we're making sure that the the different kinds of practices are serving everyone fairly. Um, We do research that's about teacher education. So we actually study how people learn to teach, Mm. so not actually, we study teaching as well, but this is how people learn to teach and how we can be more effective Mm. teacher educators. a critical dimension of our practice. Um, We study leadership preparation, so we really care about improving um, access to leaders learning how to be instructional leaders, not simply managers of budgets or facilities, but actually people who can support teachers in learning to teach while they're, or improving their teaching practice, I should say, while they're, you know, in practice. We study um, young people and their learning, so that's an, another part of my research. Um, so I'm, I'm doing work on the sensors curriculum in part to build curricula, but also to better understand who young people are. So we have a, a whole host of faculty members who follow youth throughout, actually throughout the world, and study the civic engagement of youth, um, the the out-of-school learning of young people, the cultural practices of those young people, and all of that work contributes to that mission I talked about, our our DIHE mission, of really trying to make practice better so that we can have a just and equitable society.
1: Mm -hmm. I read in one of your published articles, Elizabeth, that here at the School of Education, you have, um, at least they were new to me, new terminology for what you even call your pre-service teachers. You mentioned it earlier, you said teaching interns. And uh, what I would have referred to as a collaborating teacher in a school you call attending teachers. Could you speak just a little bit about why the the verbiage there and the intent behind it?
2: Sure. Um, It's a great question. So we, um, across our programs, we use slightly different terms. Some people use mentor teachers, and some of us use attending teachers. Um, in, in either case, we really wanted to shift from the idea of cooperating or collaborating teacher because we actually want the teachers to do more than cooperate or collaborate. We want them to participate with us in teacher education. Um, what do we mean by that? You know, Mentoring, um, offering real guidance to these young teachers and ensuring that they are learning to be the best teachers possible. Um, we in the secondary teacher education program chose the language of attending teachers because we've been studying medical education and have been really persuaded by the idea that, um, you know, attending physicians actually attend to the practice of their uh, interns and residents just as much as they're attending to patient care. Um, we think there's value in that shift to thinking about attending to both child learning and new teacher learning. And so that's why we made that shift.
1: you given an example in one of your articles about this idea that we kind of let the mistakes happen, we have in the past, and then we just debrief on them later. And I love the analogy with the medical profession. An attending physician would never let an intern make a mistake in terms of healthcare and then debrief later they would step in. And that's kind of what you're advocating for in that article.
2: That's absolutely right. In fact, um, in in some of our work with our attending teacher core, we work on intervening. We work on learning how to intervene in a way that doesn't make the intern feel bad or feel disrespected, but actually is in the service of improving practice. And, um, you know, we, we, go into classrooms with our interns and do that kind of intervention work with them and have had incredible experiences. Um, at one point I started talking about um, teacher education and, and this idea of intervening and attending as um, teaching in my tracks because mm-hmm. when I learned to ski in Utah I um, went to the top of the mountain with a colleague who happened to also be a ski instructor on the side, and he told me a few things about how the mountain works, you know, it slopes more than one way. Um, and so, you know, a few, few little tips, and then he said, um, I'm going to ski down the mountain, and you're going to ski in my tracks. Mm. And I have to say that I had tried to learn to ski many times before. And by the time I was at the bottom of that mountain, I knew how to ski. Wow. And it was because I was forced to move the way he was moving by skiing in his tracks. It was, it was a profound experience. And when we work in classrooms with our teaching interns and we intervene in really gentle ways that are really part of the instruction, we find that they can then teach in our tracks because they can just pick up So a great example was um, uh, an instance where uh, we we send our interns out in cohorts, and um, so there were three uh, interns in a classroom, and they wanted to launch a discussion, and they launched it by saying, so what do you guys think? So I can see the look on your face, Mm -hmm. all right, and you know what happened. Everybody sort of sat in silence, And then um, I think they followed with a question, something like, um, were there any words you didn't know? Because they had just done a reading. So the discussion was of of a text. And silence. And then one of them said, okay, well now get this worksheet out. And I said, oh, wait, 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 can I just ask a question? And I asked something very simple like, when do you think this article was written? And everybody started talking. And it was just a moment of, I asked the question in a a way that invited a response, and I asked a question that people could answer. And they started talking, and then the interns stepped right in, in my tracks, and picked up the discussion. So they saw it, they didn't have to wait and look at a video later or even talk about it in the abstract if mm-hmm. there were no video and say, oh, yeah, that's what we should have done. They could see it and then they could um, repair mm-hmm. and we just think that's critical.
1: Mm-hmm. So lingering a bit on the School of Education, what would you say the mission of the school is and, and how would you say you're kind of fulfilling that are working to fulfill that mission here?
2: Um, so. Having learned from you the way to talk about mission and vision, I would say our vision is that we're all about helping to prepare civically engaged children, youth, and adults to contribute to a diverse, democratic, and inclusive society. Our mission is to improve education practice in the ways I just talked about, and not just teacher practice, but also leadership practice. Um, Because as you know, great teachers can't teach in poorly run schools or systems. Um, also to improve education policy. Um, we really work hard on um, you know, studying the effects of policy. We have a number of researchers who do those large scale analyses to look at the effects of policy. And then um, to really work on improving the context of teaching and learning. So again, it, you know, we can work hard on um, learning to be great teachers. But if the contexts are just incredibly challenging and of course context goes beyond the classroom. Context can be um, you know, children living with enormous amounts of stress right. and anxiety and, and you know, lots of people are talking about how that's on the on the rise. Or context can be living in poverty. There are many ways that those contexts can shape what happens in a classroom and so we work on that as well.
1: So shifting a bit, Elizabeth, to your work again with literacy, I know you, you discuss context often in literacy and this idea of, you know, discipline-based literacy. Could you give us a, an idea from your point of view, what's the status or what's the, um, uh, yeah, what's the status of literacy education right now in Michigan or the United States in general?
2: Well, I I think um, literacy education is at risk. Um, I think that we know a lot about how to teach children to read and to write. We know less about how to do it on a large scale, um, less about how to help teachers when they're actually in classrooms um, with large groups of children who might be experiencing some of the challenges of varying context um, that I spoke about a moment ago. Um, We need to work on that, and we need to work on translating that into curricula that are meaningful and um, purposeful. Um, We have a lot of work focused on children learning discrete skills in literacy in the service of helping them learn to read or to write. And those skills matter enormously. So that work should be happening, but we need to tie it to meaning and to purpose. So we see a lot of drill, um, especially at the lower grades, and lots of push for um, what people think is fluency, um, but really often comes down to rapid reading, Mm. rapid word calling. And then we're surprised when children aren't able to really comprehend what they're reading. So we need a lot more attention to comprehension across the spectrum. Starting at pre-K, we need more attention to really integrated literacy learning. One of the biggest challenges we face in instruction is when people worry about achievement, they decide to dedicate more time to reading instruction because they're worried about reading achievement. And that's great, but not if the reading instruction is content free. So if children aren't learning to read for meaning and for ideas, and then we're spending three hours a day just on reading instruction that isn't about content and ideas, we face problems down the road when children are now expected to learn science Mm -hmm. and social studies and even the more, um, you know, abstract levels of mathematics um, because they actually haven't learned how to read to get something from the text. Mm And, or to write, to communicate meaning. Um, so that's a real challenge for us. And one of my colleagues, Nell Duke, who's very, um, very popular uh, and famous around, uh, actually around the world, um, but really in the state, uh, people are, are taking up her um, instructional ideas around reading because she really focuses on helping teachers teach very young children read for meaning and to write for meaning. Uh, She has a curriculum that she has developed at pre-K that's called Connect for Learning. And the four is a numeral four and it is um, an all-day curriculum in which literacy is integrated with math learning, science learning and um, social and emotional or social studies kinds of learning. And so, it's not a separate thing. When, when children are learning to read, they might be reading science. When they're learning to read, they might be reading mathematics. And so it's all integrated in a way that actually makes it really, um, I don't wanna say easy, because teaching is never easy, but it makes it easier for the teacher because the materials are all pulled together and everything's coherent and cohesive. And that can continue all the way through the grades. So I study at the upper grades what we call disciplinary literacy, and that's essentially what Nell is doing as well. She's starting that preparation in disciplinary literacy Mm -hmm. so that when children are reaching sixth grade or ninth grade, they actually have learned the science they need to be able to read to learn. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we really push back against the idea that young children learn to read and older children read to learn. In fact, all people are always learning to read as they move into different contexts and different disciplinary domains, but they're also always reading to learn even when they're first learning to read. So it's it's a more integrated approach and we would love to see that taken up more fully um, in the state. And the um, literacy teaching essentials that we've developed in uh, partnership with um, state leaders with the, um, the state of Michigan really gets at those kinds of teaching practices where, where children are always reading for meaning, but they also are always learning the component skills necessary for reading in any domain.
1: Okay Elizabeth, let's shift a little bit and let's talk uh, uh, more specifically about teacher recruitment. Um, There are, you know, a couple relevant statistics here and, and there's a bunch that fly around, but in general enrollment in teacher preparation programs across the country and certainly in the state of Michigan is down significantly. One study put out by the U.S. Department of Education said from 2011 to 2016, enrollment's down 59%. Looking at my alma mater, Albion College, right here in Michigan, in 2011, it's a small liberal arts school, they had 51 students enrolled, and in 2014, just nine. So, could you start out by kind of talking about how large of a problem is this?
2: It's a big problem. Um, Let me start by saying that some have analyzed um, the drop in enrollment as uh, market correction. In other words, uh, the argument is that we were simply across the country producing too many teachers. Um, they couldn't find jobs, um, and, and so the market has corrected itself and people aren't going into teaching. That doesn't explain, though, why we have shortages in certain areas. And um, when I say areas, I mean both regional areas, so urban and rural areas really struggle to find teachers, um, and, and really high quality, well-prepared teachers. Um, it's, it's just an enormous challenge. And uh, subject areas, so we have problems finding teachers in uh, the STEM fields, so science and mathematics, and also um, Spanish language learning and special education. And we should be really worried about that because we, um, you know, are at a point in uh, in history where I would expect we'll see a large number of retirements in the next 10 years. Um, And we're also seeing a lot of veteran teachers leaving the profession for other reasons that I think we'll talk about in a minute. Um, And so there's, there's potentially a perfect storm brewing, where we're not educating enough teachers in teacher prep programs. We um, are going to see retirements that are just the natural course of um, you know, the population. And um, we're also seeing a loss of our veteran teachers because they are not feeling that they can stay in the profession and sustain themselves.
1: So it's a it's a major problem, it's a major challenge. Could you talk a little bit about what the School of Education here at U of M is doing to begin to combat that problem?
2: Absolutely. Um I should start by saying we are our, our enrollment dropped by about forty percent in the last, say, twelve years. Um, but right now we're we're seeing a leveling off, so we aren't seeing continued losses, and that's in part due to some of our efforts to recruit differently. Um, you know, in the past we probably didn't have to recruit as um, as uh, diligently because we had so many applicants. Um, so we're we're really looking at um, getting out across campus more. Um, to be able to recruit and really inform young people about the power of teaching, the power of the profession. Um, we are recruiting from community colleges as well. Um, we really see possibilities there for expanding our, our teacher core. Um, we're also trying to diversify um, our teaching Core. the teaching profession is predominantly white and middle class, um, and we would really like to see a broader range of individuals in the profession because we think a broader range of people can teach a broader range of children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're working in partnership with um, all different kinds of outreach programs. We're exploring Grow Your Own programs, which means partnering with a school system or even an individual school. And encouraging young people, um, say at middle school, because you really need to start, you know, young to get kids thinking about professions, um, to to start thinking about teaching as a, a really powerful, valid profession that is all about changing the world and um, mm-hmm. making a difference. So. Um, with really uh, robust Grow Your Own programs. It usually involves, usually around ninth grade, starting to bring kids to campus and providing summer experiences and as um, you know, say go throughout their high school years, getting them more and more invested in mm-hmm. the experience of teaching and then uh, having a pathway um, for them into into the university.
1: Now that's super interesting to me, so this Grow Your Own program, so you're partnering with individual districts, Elizabeth, and is that how that works, and do, do you seek them out, are they seeking you out, how does that work?
2: Um, both, we, it, we are partnering with districts, uh, it usually has to happen at the district level, um, but it might be with an individual uh, school. Um, because it, it can be hard to be multiple places. Um, we're a small school of education, so you know we have to focus our energy. Um, and it, it goes in both directions. We are approaching our partners. We have um, some very long-term partnerships already in place, one with Ann Arbor Public Schools and one with Detroit Public Schools Community District. Um, so those are, are some obvious places that we would consider um, you know, developing these full on grow your own programs. We're not there yet, Um, we we want to be there because we think it could really be a game changer on all levels because it will help us diversify but it will also um, really help energize the profession. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Teacher recruitment is one kind of aspect but completion is another and there's data about even the small number of, of uh, folks that are enrolling aren't necessarily completing at the rates they used to be. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what a, um, a prospective teacher at the School of Education at U of M kind of goes through and how you nurture those folks um, to completion.
2: So, um, that's a great question. We have uh, several different programs, so that's important to say um, at the outset because it's a little, they each have some um, you know, slight differences uh, but I'll just give a global characterization. Um, our interns begin typically in their junior year uh, if they're undergraduates um, we also have a Master of Arts Plus Certification program. Those individuals are usually uh, career changers or um, people who got a degree and decided you know, sort of too late that they wanted to be teachers, too late to go through the undergraduate program and so now they're coming for a master's. Um, so they're a you know, bit older um, and of course they have a bachelor's degree. They all begin immediately in the field. Um, in the, the bachelor's degree programs, they begin two days a week, four hours a, a visit, um, working in classrooms. And it is very much hands-on, um, of course scaffolded um, by both our university-based teacher educators and our mentor or attending teacher partners. Um, And they do that for several semesters. In the elementary program, it's three semesters. In the secondary program, it's two semesters before they ever student teach. Student teaching is all day, every day. And we find that our interns are able to move very quickly into the independent teaching role. Now, obviously, there's still a teacher educator visiting them on a regular basis, and a mentor or attending teacher in the classroom with them, um, so they're not, you know, alone with children. But they are—they're um, just really ready to step up very quickly. Um, in the in the Master of Arts program, we call the MAC programs, elementary MAC or secondary MAC. Our um, interns begin in summer, and they participate in a summer learning intensive. That we run in partnership with Ann Arbor Public Schools, and they work with children immediately, mm. um, and then they move into a classroom-based experience, and they're in the classroom all year, um, from beginning of the semester to um, the end of the year, all the way through. Um, so there, it's an intensive one year, you know, July to June kind of program, Uh, and it is is a lot of work, but they come out incredibly well prepared. And similar to our undergraduate uh, candidates, they are very ready to step up when their official student teaching um, takes place. We also have alternative certification programs. We have the Michigan Alternative Route to Certification. That's a program where teachers are already in the classroom as independent teachers, and um, we work with them uh, to try to scaffold that experience and support it because, of course, they have had um, less mm-hmm. training before they enter the classroom as independent teachers. Uh, that takes three years to get to certification. So um, they do eventually earn a Michigan uh, teaching credential through us. Um, the the other part of the experience for all of these individuals is that we rely heavily on video records of practice. Mm. So we spend a lot of time with our interns, um, either filming them and using those videos. I'm I'm hesitating because I use the word film, and I'm not even sure it's actually film anymore <laughs> these days. I don't. It's you know it's digital. So I'm never sure if I'm using the words correctly, but. Um, we use the video records to help them see their practice. So even though I said before, you know we encourage our attendings and and we ourselves, when we're present, intervene to intervene in the moment, we also make records of practice. and we use those records to really help our interns learn more effectively um, the the sort of component moves of teaching. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, really skilled teaching is is invisible. That's why it's so skilled. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to just learn by watching. Mm -hmm. And if you do, but you don't do it quite effectively, it can be hard to know how to improve that doing, that practice, unless you see someone else. I'll give an example. Um, One of my um, favorite teaching partners and tending teacher in our program is uh, a man by the name of Ross Dunbar. Who teaches at Skyline High School shout out to Ross and uh, he it has allowed us in the secondary program to um, film his teaching um, so we do we have our, all our attendings on film and we use those to help our interns learn and he at one point introduces to his ninth grade world history class um, the idea that they're going to go through nine historical documents in the period, or maybe it's 12, I can't remember, I think it's 12, and they're going to work on a driving question that they have to try to address by reading these documents, and they're going to work through them together, and you know, he has this, the, the guiding question up on the board, and And we're going to look at it in you know these terms is it political is it economic is it religious reasons it's a history class and he says to them it's just one tiny move but he says we have 12 documents to read today and that is hugely ambitious but you know what you can do this Mm -hmm. we're going to do this together and you can do it and i i have my interns watch that repeatedly and i ask them what was amazing about his practice mm-hmm. in that moment. And you know, it's, it's something that they wouldn't see, they wouldn't notice mm-hmm. if we didn't have that video to stop and say, hang on, I just want you to think about this for a minute. He told them the work was hard. He told them, he used the word ambitious. I love that too, right? He didn't say, this is hard, these, these are boring old documents from history. He said, this is ambitious and you can do it. Yeah. That's so powerful. That's a teaching move that is invisible. It's so skilled, and he's very calm about it. He's not harried, like, oh, we got to get through these 12 documents. It's just brilliant teaching. That's the kind of thing we do in our program. We spend a lot of time looking at those nuances of teaching. We also have developed what we call tagging schemes. So in disciplinary literacy teaching, for example, there are particular moves. You know, some of them are around, um, you know, how you introduce a text. Some are mm-hmm. how to launch a discussion, like mm-hmm. I was describing earlier. We've developed a set, a scheme, we call it, a tagging scheme, of these moves. And when our interns are watching both the attending teacher videos that we've produced and their own, they're asked to use the tagging scheme and watch for the moves. So they now have something to analyze their practice yeah. beyond I got it all, I got through the lesson, the kids were quiet, or the kids raised their hands, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know, those are important, I mean, not necessarily being quiet, but it's important that you have good management and that, you know, people were participating. But there are also those more complex moves of teaching that are about the subject matter and in in what I teach about The literacy Mm -hmm. practice, and that kind of tool, and that ability to slow down the practice and watch it and rewatch it, it's really powerful Mm -hmm. to teacher education. So that's what we do to try to keep our interns um, engaged motivated, feeling efficacious Mm -hmm. about their practice that's developing over time. They get enormous amounts of feedback all the way through student teaching. I think in some um, circles, people think that universities are dumping student teachers into classrooms and leaving the work of teacher education to Mm -hmm. the people in the field, in the schools. That is absolutely not the case in our program, and I would dare say it's not the case in any teacher education program I know in the state, um, we we work very closely with our interns throughout all their field experience. We visit them a lot, um, we we counsel them, and we keep we keep track of their growth over time. Mm. And if they're not growing, we do work with them to think about whether teaching is the career Mm. they want. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you asked about how do you keep people in the program. Well, we keep people in the program we believe will be really effective teachers. We counsel people who might want to engage in education in some way into other ways that they can serve the world through education practice. Um, So that's important. And then finally, And this, I think, goes to veteran teacher um, retention. So going beyond keeping them in our program, but now keeping them in the profession, um, we're working on a partnership to develop um, a teaching school, Mm -hmm. um, a space, a singular space, where we can continue with our graduates in their first years of practice. We believe that they need that support. in in really um, challenging environments, as I said before, you know it's hard. Even if you have all the tools for practice, um, it's hard to make those tools work. Mm-hmm. And we think that we have a responsibility to try to continue to support our young novice teachers once yeah. they're once they're in practice. So we're developing a teacher residency program. Um, We're working right now on um, a location in the city of Detroit. And we are also um, in conversation with our colleagues here in Washtenaw County to think about how we can um, turn our existing really amazing strong partnerships into something that functions like um, a teaching school, teaching residency, and continue to support our graduates. That's
1: that's excellent. And maybe before we dive a little deeper into that, let's define the problem a bit. So a great segue into teacher retention. Some studies show about one in 12 teachers across the country every year are leaving the profession. And that just gets worse when you look at those that have been teaching for five years or less or those that have been teaching in high needs areas. So um, that you spoke about earlier, five years or less, some of the uh, studies show one in five are leaving. And so, um, so it's a big problem. I mean, we talked about just getting people into teacher preparation programs is a problem. But now they've completed. They've done that, and they've completed, and they're placed in in a district, and they're working, and they're leaving. And so, yeah, talk a little bit more about partnerships, but also maybe some other strategies that you think have some legs to to get teachers to kind of stay in the profession.
2: Um, well, I think probably to talk about um, strategies that have legs, we should talk about the problems or the the reasons that people are leaving. So. Um, one reason I would say is lack of preparation. So if they are not well prepared, um, then you know they they don't feel efficacious and who wants to stay in a job in which you don't feel efficacious. Um, some um, alternative certification programs are not intended to be long-term teaching programs. So the goal is not to stay in the profession. It's actually to, have an experience of teaching and then take that experience into other uh, arenas of public policy making or of just of you know, living. Um, and so we, we do have to acknowledge that some of the um, lack of retention is due to the fact that those programs are not meant to keep teachers mm-hmm. in the profession. But those aren't the only um, reasons that people are leaving the profession, and especially at such um, incredibly high numbers. You know, back in the day, people stayed in the profession for 25, 30 years. Um, so there's got to be more than just the fact that we have these alternative um, certification programs. So one is, of course, you know, the the thing that everyone goes to immediately, and that is pay. Um, and it's not. Um, so much that teachers are not well paid. Uh, that is that is a problem. But teachers have always been paid at lower levels than other professions. It's that pay is um, has been stagnant for many years. So the lack of pay increases. Um, people who started in the profession making thirty-five thousand dollars and you know five years later are making thirty-eight thousand dollars. That's not sustainable. So it's the it's the stagnation um, of of pay. Uh, it's also the reduction of benefits and um, pen- pensions being one of those. And you know, people come down on various uh, sides on the pension question. It's just a reality that as um, different kinds of benefits that offset the low salary are reduced, we're going to see less people or fewer people wanting to go into the profession. But I think one of the biggest factors, and there's actually research uh, out of Michigan State University, Um, I hear Michigan State University is a pretty good place, Uh, (laughs) uh, and uh, they do some great research, and they um, have done a study, a a group of people have done a study on teacher retention and found that the main reason teachers say they're leaving the profession, and this is especially um, veteran teachers, really, really strong, well-prepared veteran teachers are leaving because they feel a lack of respect. They feel like they are not um, being given the opportunity to use their own professional judgment. They feel like they're being um, held accountable to moving targets. So it's not about being held accountable. Every teacher, every great teacher I know wants to be held accountable they're they're proud of their responsibility um, it's it's that they're not sure what the accountability standard is from year to year but the biggest thing is the lack of respect so it's this um, really negative discourse about teachers and teaching so that actually um, is something I should have mentioned before in um, in my response to your question about recruitment, because one of the things we're working on is a campaign to improve the, the narrative about teaching, about the profession, um, to really try to push back on some media representations of teachers and teaching, to, um, to ask people to think about how they got where they are, um, to think about who what one profession is responsible actually for all other professions, right? Uh, yeah. um, to think about where we will be if we don't have a strong teaching force in this country. W- what will we do if we can't populate our schools, mm-hmm. our classrooms with teachers? So if we could really start to shift that conversation, I think it would both serve to recruit new teachers and keep our you know, fabulous professionals in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So that's work that, you know, we're trying to take on through various means, social media campaigns, yeah. um, we're, we're filming um, a video, uh, just getting people to talk about um, an important teacher or important teachers in their lives, um, and to really try to, to change the way we talk about and to teachers and not take them for granted, um, but certainly not say negative things about yeah. them.
1: What, Elizabeth, what do you think the um, average teacher who might be listening to this right now can do themselves? You know, I mean, you know, the School of Education at, at U of M um, feels like a big entity that can take some of this stuff on, but what can the individual do to to kind of um, get at those things? You, you, The three areas that you mentioned, you know, um, kind of a lack of appropriate training in, the, in pre-service programs, the idea of compensation and benefits, but also this lack of respect. And so if I'm listening to this right now and I, you know, I'm applauding the efforts of, of, of the University of Michigan, what can I do? Right.
2: Well, I think one great thing would be to talk to their, to their students about teaching as a profession, as a career. It's interesting to me um, that I notice when there's career day, all different uh, professions are uh, brought in to speak to kids in schools. This is so interesting, right? All sorts of professions are brought in, but teachers are not. Why? Because they're in the classroom. That's what we think to ourselves, well, we don't need Mm -hmm. to talk about teaching, but of course. You know, kids think teachers are magical. We always used to joke when I was teaching high school that we thought they, they thought we froze at the like at the chalkboard at 3:30, yeah. and then we just, you know, awakened yeah. at 7:30 when they walked in the door. Exactly. Yeah. So when they see you in the grocery store, they freak out, right? They don't know what <laughs> to make of you. Why? Why are you out of the school? And so I think thinking about career day as one opportunity, but not just career day, every day, yeah. to be able to talk about the joy that this profession brings, the, the commitment that they've made, the education they needed. Um, I think all of those things would really help change the way people think about the profession. I think um, another thing would be if, if you have the opportunity to host an intern take advantage of that opportunity and talk to the intern about why teaching is great because the interns need to hear that it's um it's it's easy to think well they they've already chosen this profession but sometimes honestly what they hear is people being really discouraged by policies, um, by you know the constant churn. Oh, we have a new curriculum this year. You know, wonder what we'll have in two years. You know, it's uh, there are a lot of things that happen in systems that um, are really challenging. But thinking about how to bring um, future teachers into the the joy and power of teaching, I think is critical. Yeah. Um, I think another thing might be to really try to work. On um, ideas for helping teachers kind of build a career ladder, mm. and this this would require um, you know more than just um, our teaching colleagues, but also school leaders, district leaders, um, to really explore the idea of what it would mean to have teacher leaders, master teachers, and so on, and really differentiate those kinds of steps yeah. in the um, in the profession without requiring people to leave the classroom. Right. Right. So, I mean, obviously leave the classroom maybe for part of the day, but be in someone else's classroom. Yeah. Scaffolding, being an attending teacher. So one of the things that we're thinking about in our teaching school is that those attending teachers will have time To be present in the classroom with the teaching residents and of course with our interns as well and that we'll all be working in total collaboration to educate those young teachers Mm -hmm. so seeing seeing ourselves as um, as leaders I think is really important but then also that's a way that teachers can feel like um, they really are part of a profession and that you know if they want to stay in they don't have to only be in this classroom teaching, you know, a new set of kids every year for the rest of their lives, that they actually can have leadership roles. I think that's really critical.
1: If I'm not mistaken, um, Detroit Public Community School District has a a teacher leadership program that they're just starting, or they did last year, yeah, to, to, get, to kind of get that ladder, exactly. that professional ladder going. And I would just add, too, um, <clears throat> Luke Wilcox, uh, who's a graduate here and actually introduced me to you. So, Michigan sh- Teacher of the Year. Michigan Teacher of the Year. Shout out to Luke. He and I and Tracy Hordisky, another former Michigan Teacher of the Year, started a mastermind group. And this, I- this idea of getting um, positive, solution-seeking individuals together, there are a lot of challenges in education. Um, and it's, I think, too easy to to get in a group and kind of commiserate a little bit, but to actually turn that into solution-seeking behavior has been, I can tell you from experience, incredibly fulfilling and enriching. And I would, I would venture to say, and I'm, this isn't burdened by research, but that uh, folks in a, a setting like that are. are Far less likely to leave the profession.
2: Actually, it is um, it is burdened. I like that word, um, or bolstered by mm-hmm. research. Uh, uh, former U of M faculty member Roger Goddard did uh, studies of teacher self-efficacy and found that in in systems where you know everything was about positive supports and making a difference, those teachers actually mm. felt a greater sense of efficacy and stayed in the profession longer. There's also some interesting, um, uh, I guess it's sort of collateral benefit from um, a program um, called One Goal, and it's a, it's a program focused on getting kids to college. It's One Goal, and they, take, um, they work with uh, school districts to take kids who are sort of in that average um, achievement range, and their entire goal is getting kids to college. And the collateral benefit is that the teachers who are part of that work are staying in the profession. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I don't know the, the research citation on that. It, that was something that some of the founders of One Goal shared with me. And I just thought, this is yeah. awesome, yeah. right? This is evidence that when teachers feel like they're making a difference, yeah. they want to be part of this profession forever. Absolutely. I want to just um, let you know about uh, something that we're exploring, and we think we're going to be starting. And so I want to use this as uh, an advance uh, notice to everyone, especially in your mastermind group. Um, we are exploring the idea of starting Michigan, the University of Michigan, teaching fellows program, mm-hmm. and it would be. Um, an application-based program for a small group of fellows every year to come together to work on a problem, um, find solutions, research-based solutions, write about it, um, share you know through blogs, um, yeah. podcasts um, with others what they're doing, um, and actually to do kind of action research, but you know, really collaborate with each other, and also to um, film themselves in practice, Mm. so that we can start to use that and really start pulling people together to do professional development Mm. that can go beyond, um, you know, it's sort of the the one-shot, you know, keynote speaker who comes in, but actually engaging these incredible master teachers in professional development. So we're hoping to launch the program next year, and we are looking into ways that we can um, secure funding to be able to provide, you know release time and um, you know, just s- small amounts of money to bring people together and, you know, have food and um, collaborative kinds of activities. So um, keep that in mind, and all the teachers who are out there listening to this, look for that application.
1: That's wonderful. Yeah, we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Elizabeth, I'm noticing that I've kind of uh, gone over on our time. You've been incredibly gracious with your time, and this has been a ton of fun for me, and just thank you so much for, for, uh, for doing this today. Where could people kind of follow you online and the work that's that's happening both both you personally but also the School of Education.
2: Um, well first let me say thank you. I always enjoy talking about teaching and learning and education and, and you're just such a great uh, leader in the field so I appreciate the opportunity. Um, where can you find out about the School of Education? So uh, we have a Twitter I don't know the the technical lingo. My communications people will be embarrassed. <laughs> um, but uh, it's UMISH Education. And I'm going to look at my notes just to make sure I said that right. Um, and I also am, um, yeah, UMISH Education. I am at ELIANMO9. That's my own. Um, Personal Twitter feed. You mm-hmm. can Twitter something. Twitter handle. Yeah, handle. That's it. That's it. So my Twitter handle. You can tell by my lack of uh, <laughs> skill, my my lack of discourse knowledge that I I use it sporadically, but I do um, try to you know let people know about great things that are happening here. Um, We also, of course, have a website. Um, We're going through a a redesign, so we're really excited about the new website. Uh, It is www.soe.umich.edu. And I um, just uh, launched with my colleague, Darren Stockdell, a disciplinary literacy um, uh, course. Um, It's all online. It comes through LearnKit. Oh. And it's, I believe, five modules. I think that's right. Five modules. Um, It's really awesome because we have members of disciplines talking about their work and how they use reading and writing Mm. to advance their work and the different kinds of practices they engage in. And then, of course, we we teach strategies for um, engaging in disciplinary literacy teaching. We also have um, a MOOC, uh, a series of five MOOCs. I have to say this correctly. Again, you can see, even though I teach new media and new literacies, um, the digital uh, is, is not my uh, strength. But the, the MOOC, which stands for Massive Online Open Course, mm-hmm. uh, is is actually something that, when taken together, uh, you can receive a micro master's certificate from the University of Michigan. Mm. Um, the MOOCs themselves are all completely free, and if you want the certificate per MOOC, um, it's something like $199 per MOOC, and then the last capstone course is $299. That $1,100 total bill um, then accords a person the Micro Master's Certificate mm. from Michigan, and it's on leading educational improvement and innovation. That's so great. it's um, all improvement science, it's really designed for instructional leaders, for principals and superintendents, and um, we're also... Um, suggesting that school board members might like to take it because it's all about systems improvement. Um, And then if a person gets the MicroMasters certificate and is admitted to the University of Michigan School of Education master's program, they will have 12 credits of master's degree work already completed. Mm. So it's kind of um, a great way to pursue a master's degree at the University of Michigan School of Education. Um, we have, it's in all different areas, urban pedagogy, um, educational leadership, teaching and learning, and new media and new literacies. Um, and 12 credits through this Micro Master Certificate for only $1,100, it's Excellent. pretty pretty cool. But what we're most proud of is it's free to everyone. Mm-hmm. So anyone who wants to take it can take it. And we like the idea that um, we're sort of democratizing yeah. access to, to yeah. this kind of knowledge. So we're proud of ourselves for that.
1: Well, Elizabeth, I'll be sure to to link all of these, the Twitter handle, the websites, the online course, the MOOCs. We'll link all of that in our show notes. So as you know, the listeners hopefully aren't driving in the car right now, we're trying to write all this <laughs> down, they can go back to our show notes and get all of the, the relevant information. So Great. thank you so much for joining thank us you. today, Elizabeth. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Same for me. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Transforming Learning by CBD. Continue the conversation with us by visiting cbdconsulting.com slash elevate edu where you can contact our team to help brainstorm, plan, reflect, or troubleshoot your ideas and strategies. For more podcast episodes, visit anchor.fm slash cbdpodcast or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Help us get the word out by leaving a review and rating on your podcast app as well as sharing on your favorite social media platform. Tag at CBD Consulting and we'll be sure to respond.